And this is Bill Newman. I'm in for Buzz Eisenberg. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon. I'm really interested in the guest and what Buzz's guest has to say. Uh, this comes in the invitation from Buzz to the guest came from a an article on the front page of last Saturday's Greenfield Recorder. The headline, Eco Grief's Support Group in Conway to Address Climate Anxiety. The story begins, in an effort to help people process their anxiety over the environment and climate change, a Conway artist is forming an Eco Grief Support Group. That artist is Hannah Harvester, who is with us in the studio this afternoon. Hannah, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for this work. I'll tell you, the part of the article that just totally caught my attention it was the impetus for this for you, which had to do with a part of a session you were having with a therapist. Can you share that with you? I don't mean to intrude, but if you'd be willing to share that, I'd like to hear more about it. Sure. Um, <laughs> so I was um, speaking with my therapist just this past summer about um, my confusion looking into the future um, and my sadness and fear and dread um, around what what we're seeing happening to the environment and um, the uncertainty surrounding what's going to happen with climate change. And as I was talking, um, we were on Zoom, and I noticed that um, my therapist was crying. Um, and when I finished talking, she said, um, everything you just said is true, and I have nothing to say to help you. I feel the same way. Be a bit more specific, if you would. Again, I'm not trying to intrude on uh, patient therapist privilege, but I would like to know, what was the topic? I mean, are we talking about uh, wildfires or torrential rains? Or... Well, it was this summer. Um, so we did have wildfires going on. I think that it was that morning on the news that I'd heard that the monarch butterfly is now listed as an endangered um, species. And this is a time in my life where I things were going really well with my art practice and my art business I was starting to teach and um, and I was feeling full of confusion about my priorities. Um, is this really what I'm supposed to be focusing on? Um, am I really supposed to be trying to save for retirement? Like what is happening um, and what does the future hold? So Hannah Harvester, I do want to come back to this. I want to take a brief detour and ask you to share with our listeners. You're an artist. Tell us what your medium is, where you work, how long you've been here, a bit of your background. And then I want to get into this question of have you been an environmental activist and what does this all mean? But let's hear a bit about sure. you first, please. Sure. So um, I've been um, I've been living here in Western Mass in Conway since 2017. Um, I'm primarily a landscape artist um, and I'm working primarily in soft pastels Um and I also do some printmaking. Um, and just since this past spring, I'm working from a beautiful studio right by the South River, um, right in Conway. Um, it, what was the rest of that question? No, I don't, who knows? Who could remember? Who could remember that far back? <laughs> it was probably a terrible question. It was probably six questions in one. But I think you answered all of them, or at least most of them. Listen, I would like to know this. I'd like to go back to what we were talking about uh, before I asked you about some of your bio, which is you were talking to your therapist. You have this kind of epiphany that your therapist can't help you with your feelings about the what's happening to the climate. And I'm wondering, just one or two more questions of that, if you don't, about that, if you don't mind. And it's, did you feel uh, anxiety for yourself? for the next generation? Uh, who, who was the anxiety and the sadness focused on? At this point, it's for the next generation. I, um, I've done enough interior work that I've made peace with my own mortality. Um, but I have two oh, young... When we're done later, <laughs> after, after, this, after this session's over, let's talk, okay? I'd like to know about that. I, I've mostly made peace with my own mortality. Um, but I have two young nephews. I work um, part-time as a nanny, and I take care of babies and toddlers. Um, and I feel, um, I feel very sad and scared for their future. Let's go to the headline. 
the, literally the headline in last Saturday's Greenfield Recorder, Eco Grief Support Group in Conway to Address Climate Anxiety. Have you been a climate activist up to this point? Um, not really. No, I've been someone who's been, I've been very, very, very aware of climate change and ecological destruction in general. And I've basically been paralyzed by the big feelings that I have around that, like the feelings of hopelessness, of fear, of sadness, um, and dread. And it's caused me to turn away from activism because I, I didn't want to put myself in any situation where I had to hear the bad news that I already know, but I didn't want to hear it because it was too emotional for me. So you decided to put together a support group. What do you mean by a support group? I mean a place where um, people have permission to talk about these really difficult emotions um, with other people who understand those emotions. I think that um, it can be very, it can feel very isolating um, to, to be holding these um, feelings and, and feel like you're not supposed to talk about them um, in public. You're not supposed to bring up climate change or, or the environment at a, a party or even with your good friends because it's, it's often seen, seen as, you know, you're being a downer um, and I think it's really, really important for people to realize that they are not the only people having these emotions, um, and that in fact, they are completely reasonable emotions to be having in the face of what's happening. So bringing together people who feel that way so that they can have a place to talk about it. Is part of the reluctance and embarrassment, I have these really deep feelings about climate change as opposed to my mother, my father, my husband, my wife, my, uh, my partner, um, my kids, uh, you know, all the kinds of things that you think traditionally go into a discussion with a therapist or at least primarily takes one to a therapist and you're saying, oh my God, I have these same kinds of deep-seated emotions about climate and that somehow is wrong or not acceptable or that sort of thing? Or am I totally barking up the wrong tree I'm here? not sure. Um, I think that people do feel sometimes a sense of embarrassment to bring it up um, because it's sort of seen as a taboo subject, I think, in a lot of circles, maybe not in activist circles, but in the general public, I think it's seen as taboo. And I think a lot of therapists just aren't equipped for it. I don't think that they... Um, I don't think that there's anything inherently embarrassing about it, but I think that like before this therapist that I had, the prior two just sort of dismissed my concerns as like, well, that can't be what's really going on. Ah, <laughs> now that's interesting. Yeah. Whereas you think and others feel that in fact, your anxiety and depression about climate in fact can be really a real uh, uh, episodic kind of trigger triggering mechanism for you. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's hard to, um, to address all the other issues in one's life if you're feeling an underlying existential dread. <laughs> you're quoted in the Greenfield Recorder saying this, quote, the first step towards going through these emotions is realizing you're not alone in this. I think a lot of people don't talk about it, and that's certainly true for me. We're feeling these feelings for good reasons, so let's talk about it and take it from there. You decided to, in fact, start a group. Tell us what you've done. Um, well, yeah, I just put it out there. I said I'm going to have this um, eco-grief support group. I have a beautiful space um, that I can uh, invite people to. Um, and in the meantime, I've been doing a lot of my own reading and learning um, about these subjects and feel like I'm in a place where I can hold that space. I, I have worked through, um, I have worked through my emotions and I'm at least able to face them and talk about them, which I was not before. Um, so I wanted to, um, to, yeah, to provide a space, which is basically what I, I'm doing. So we had our first meeting um, just this past Monday um, and had a great group of um, seven people, including me, from all over Western Mass. 
I, again, I feel a little awkward, like I'm intruding, but tell me if I am and we'll move along. But I would like to know this, Hannah Harvester. You start this group. Did people share their feelings? Did you learn something about other people's perceptions regarding climate change that are different from yours? Tell us, if you would, or what you can, or what you're willing to, about what happened in this group, the first meeting. Well, people definitely shared their feelings. Um, and I think I mostly heard myself um, reflected in what different people said. I think di different people feel different facets of what's going on more deeply. So some people are really feeling for animals um, who are uh, innocent and suffering in wildfires. Some people are feeling for their friends and families who are in California. And, you know, some people are feeling more anger um, that this was all preventable. We, we actually could have done something about this a few decades ago. Um, and yeah, I think one, um, yeah, but I think people share, share a whole panoply of emotions and they are just feeling, you know, um, one or two aspects of it most strongly, but people feel just profound sorrow, anger, some feelings of shame and like, like I'm contributing to this and I can't do anything about it. A terrible sense of hopelessness and fear for future generations. We are speaking with Hannah Harvester. She is the founder of the Eco Support Group, the Eco Grief Support Group in Conway. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to continue this conversation. I want to know about sort of the rules of being in this group and is confidentiality respected and how does one join and what have you learned and what do you expect to learn and how often the group meets and all of that, which we will cover on the other side of this break. Stay with us. Happy talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, we believe in a hand up, not a handout. Habitat's mission to provide home ownership opportunities for low-income families is unique as it requires partner families to work alongside the many volunteers that are reaching out to help them. Each Habitat partner family provides at least 250 hours of sweat equity or physical labor toward the construction of their own home, other Habitat family homes, and special projects. We believe this shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder joint effort results not only in a better finished house, but that this shared work experience makes for a better community. If you believe everyone should have a decent place to live, that home ownership brings strength and stability to families, and that everyone deserves the opportunity for a better future, we could use your support. We're Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. We build homes, hope, and community in both Franklin and Hampshire counties. Learn more today, please visit us at pvhabitat.org. The FAA said Wednesday morning's ground stop order that delayed thousands of flights was the result of a glitch in a critical system that enhances flight safety. Federal aviation officials said it did not appear to be the result of a cyber attack. There's good news for car shoppers who consider safety a prime factor in choosing a vehicle. The Insurance Institute for Highway Safety says automatic emergency braking is now nearly universal in light vehicles, increasing safety. Most automakers have the feature on 95% of their fleets. 
Social security scams have proliferated since the start of the new year, and it may be because recipients are getting a big increase starting this month. One of the most common scams tries to persuade seniors their social security number is being suspended. The government never suspends social security numbers. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And this is Bill Newman in for Buzz Eisenberg. I am speaking with Hannah Harvester, who is a Conway resident, an artist in Conway, who has started an eco-grief group support, an eco-grief, excuse me, support group in Conway. And I really find this interesting to who is... Who are the participants? Who wants to participate or who feels a need to participate? And I'm wondering whether uh, the group, and I'm not asking you obviously for any identities. I, I take this confidentiality in the group? Yes. Okay. So I'm not asking for any identifying information or names or anything like that. But I would like your impression as to whether or not the people who are are feeling the need for this kind of a support group are more creative, I mean, you're an artist, uh, more insightful, more uh, observant, perhaps, than than I am, uh, because they feel what's happening to the earth and what we're doing to the earth, and they internalize that in a way more poignantly, more more profoundly than others. I'm wondering what your your feelings are about that. I think that you have hit on something. Um, I can't you know, I can't speak for, for people who aren't like me, but I can say that, yeah, I mean, the reason that I'm an artist um, is because my inspiration comes from my love for the world, my love for the, the beauty of the world. And um, and the, the people that I've spoken with who, um, who feel similarly um, also express just deep love for nature. Um, and for the world around us. And I think that these feelings that we have, I, I said earlier that they are reasonable feelings to have. Um, I, I, I think that we could look at them as even the uh, us feeling the pain of the earth. I mean, we are part of the earth. Um, and so um, in a sense, we're feeling we are feeling the earth's pain. I, I think there has been some research um, that says that shows that uh, people who have anxiety around climate tend to be more imaginative and have more open um, personalities and more imaginative personalities. Um, I guess because we can take these facts that we're hearing and see, you know, see a picture in our mind of what's to come. Um, but you know, I don't have the the solid facts on that. Um, but yeah, I think the more you love the world, um, the more painful it is to see it harmed. Leading to two questions, at least, is this beauty that you see in the world and the destruction that you feel, is that reflected in your art? I paint beautiful landscapes, landscapes that I see that move me with their beauty. And in a way it's very it's a very traditional approach. So I'm not painting like clear-cut forests or or something like that. I'm painting very local landscapes that just move me with their beauty. Um and in a way it's it's I think it's a way for me. I I paint outdoors. I paint on plein air. Um so it's sort of a for me a meditation um or like even a communion with that that piece of land that I'm painting in a way for me to honor that beauty. Um, I don't know that it's doing anything to help any, anybody or help the world, but it's, a but it helps me. Um, it helps me to really feel that beauty and celebrate it. And, um, I think that's what nourishes me to be able to do some of the more difficult, um, emotional work. And you sell your art out of your studio or in other studios? Um, from my studio and um, online. Um, I occasionally have shows, but um, right now it's it's available um, 
on my website, hannahharvester.com. In terms of the group itself and the process of the group, uh, it's peer-led, I take it. You are, you are the founder, uh, but it's a group that's going to uh, be facilitated by uh, trained professionals or not. You're just going to do it on your own. Tell us what you envision in that regard. Right. So starting out, um, I am facilitating these weekly meetings and um, I, I would be a peer. I'm not a trained professional, um, but we are going to have um, monthly guest facilitators, trained facilitators of different modalities. There, there are um, various approaches that have been developed to, to um, work with these difficult eco-emotions. Um, so our first guest facilitator is Karina Lutz. Um, she's going to be giving a workshop on Saturday, January 28th in a practice called the work that reconnects, um, which is a particular approach to honoring our pain for the world and then going from there to seeing new possibilities for how to engage. It seems to me, and just tell me if I'm just off base on this, that there's actually a very traditional kind of therapeutic uh, aspect of this, which is I can see young people saying, I am furious at older people, including but not limited to my parents. Look at this mess you've made and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering if that is part of your thinking about how this group will proceed. In a certain way, um, most of the people who came were of the older generations, although there was one other. I, I'm sort of in between, and there was another sort of younger person. Um, but in the sense that I'm trying to help people process these emotions so that they can turn back to activism if they've burned out or turn to activism if they've been too paralyzed to take action, and so that we can all take some action on behalf of these younger generations who need us to act. They have to go to school. I mean, they're doing this activism, but they don't have all the time and resources. We need to be supporting them. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't have a lot of young people there. I think they're in their own groups, and they're really tr they're really involved in activism. So one way of viewing this is overcoming emotional barriers to activism. Absolutely. Would you be kind enough to tell us, uh, Hannah, how people can get in touch with you, how they can become part of this group? Sure. Um, please reach out to me by email. Um, my um, contact is hannah.harvester at gmail.com, and that's hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, and harvester, just like it sounds. Um, and you can uh, go to my website. It's also hannahharvester.com and find my contact information there as well. And when will the group meet? Uh, it will meet again this coming Monday, um, 6.30 to 8.30 at my studio, um, 46 Delabar Ave in Conway. And thereafter, it will meet how often? It will meet weekly um, until such time that we make a change. But um, for the time being, we're going to be meeting Monday evenings, and then we do have this guest workshop um, the last Saturday of the month. And sometimes what seems self-evident here in the studio goes by really quickly on the other end. Would you give the address where people can reach you again, please? The uh, email? Yes. Yep, it's hannah.harvester at gmail.com. And in our last 30 seconds, would you like to share a final thought with where you think this is going and how you feel about what you've started? Um, I feel like I'm at the beginning of a journey that I don't know where it's heading exactly. Um, like I'm seeing one step ahead um, and only one step ahead. Um, but um, I, I, would, I just felt called to do this. So I do trust that it's going somewhere that's going to help. <laughs> we leave it there. Hannah Harvester, thank you so very much for your time, your effort, your expertise and your insights. We really appreciate your being with us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Amherst Business Improvement District, along with the town of Amherst, are accepting applications from new businesses to receive assistance in opening. Businesses can apply for one of two grants. The business grant will award $10,000 to selected businesses in the town to help open, 
The grant applies to brick-and-mortar and storefront businesses. The technical assistance grant is also available to help with professional fees in opening a new business in the town. Those funds can be used to help with architects, attorneys, internal systems, build-out needs, and branding specialists. New and upcoming businesses can send in their applications to Amherst Bid from now through February 15th. Rep. Jim McGovern says whatever model Amherst creates for offering reparations for African-American residents could set an example for other states, as well as the federal government. McGovern spoke at a virtual African Heritage Reparation Assembly listening session Wednesday night and said the work being done in Amherst could spur on a federal bill he is co-sponsoring that would form a commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans. And over two dozen arts organizations have been awarded grants from the Northampton Arts Council. The 32 grants, totaling over $27,000, were allocated to the city by the Massachusetts Cultural Council's Local Cultural Council Program. The funding will be used to support art projects and programming in Northampton. The Northampton Arts Council received 91 applications for over $151,000 in requested funding. Hi, I'm Nick Oresco. Temperatures dropping into the 40s and 30s this afternoon with mostly cloudy skies and windy conditions. Mostly cloudy tonight with lows in the mid to upper 20s. The weekend looks dry with temperatures in the 30s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Hey, it's Jason with the Weather Channel and SnowCountry.com. And one of the best savings rates in America is another reason banking with Capital One is the easiest decision. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Another good long snowmaking session lasting five days and nights sets us up nicely for the three-day holiday ski weekend with a good selection of well-covered slopes. After some showers early, the weekend looks dry and we're ready for three nice days to get outside and hit the slopes. Berkshire East checking in with half of their trails open for the weekend. They've got action till 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday nights. Jiminy Peak skis till 10 every night of the week. 10 miles of downhill terrain there. Catabout skiing about a quarter of their runs and counting, adding more for this weekend. Ski sundown over a dozen. That's about 90% of their trails. They've got skiing till 10 every night. This report brought to you by Smugglers Notch Vermont, where family funds guaranteed. Visit smugs.com. Check out more at snowcountry.com. I'm Jason Dean. Learn Spanish, learn French, learn Italian, or German. Learn a language with the International Language Institute. Beginner, intermediate, and advanced conversation classes. Speaking the language with others who are learning. And ILI is a PDP provider for the state of Massachusetts. Plus, earn continuing ed units. Learn Spanish, French, German, Italian, Portuguese. Ten-week part-time online classes start January 17th. Sign up online. The International Language Institute in downtown North when you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. RiverValley.coop. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. This segment is with one of Buzz's, I know, favorite guests, Duke Goldman. The title is Fair Play. Duke Goldman, thank you so much for being back with us today. I'd appreciate it if you would share with our listeners what you and I were talking about before we came on, which was the, the phenomenon, I think that's the word I want, 
that is and was uh, Serena Williams. So bring our listeners in on that conversation, if you would, please. Sure. Well, in the last Fair Play at the end of the year, I was talking a lot about women's sports and had mentioned Serena Williams because she retired this past year, or at least stepped away from the game. There's some mention in articles about how she may at some point come back. But she is clearly the GOAT, you know, the the phrase people often use as they say it about Tom Brady, the GOAT of, of football, the greatest quarterback of all time. Well, Serena Williams is the greatest female tennis player of all time. I mean, maybe Martina Navratilova could give her a run for her money, but I, I still think Serena is just the best. And what she had to overcome was tremendous. Um, I recommend to people, if they haven't seen it, the movie King Richard, which was directed by a gentleman named Ray Green, Reynaldo Green, who was a person of my acquaintance. I got to meet Reynaldo and work with him on a pitch for a series, a uh, potential series on Negro baseball leagues, uh, which did not come to fruition. But Ray um, had d- directed the movie about Serena and Venus, her sisters, uh, uh our origins and development as tennis greats and the, the battles they had to fight and overcome and all of the racism they faced. And we all know that Serena has had a lot of body shaming she's faced, and yet she stood up for herself as she forged an incredibly phenomenal and outstanding career. Um, not only that she played till she was almost 41 years old, she played her first um, open tennis match in 1995 before Nomi Osaka or Ashley Barty were even born. She beat Maria Sharapova, a great tennis player in her own right, 19 straight times. She had a 128 mile per hour serve, which is faster than some of the male greats. Um, She had a total game and she just displayed amazing courage and performance and presence in her life. And she lived it openly and unashamedly, speaking up for herself and dealing with lots of flack throughout her career. So her sister Venus, older than her, is still playing tennis. The two of them have just been astonishing in what they've accomplished. And they both speak to the place that I believe women's sports is meant to occupy as we move forward in the 21st century, to bring women's sports to the attention that it deserves. So Duke Goldman, you're a sports historian. You're an expert on the Negro Leagues in baseball. You have written a lot about equity and uh, injustices in sport and particularly professional sports. You're talking about Serena Williams, and you look back on her phenomenal long career, and I would appreciate your perspective on whether or not she changed the sport of tennis for women and whether she changed the sport of tennis for people of color. I think she did both. I think she you know, spoke to the notion that um, women's sports were equally compelling as men's sports. Um, I think she was just so amazing to watch. She performed at such a high level. I think there's this sometimes explicit, but if not explicit, certainly implicit notion that the women are good, but, you know, the men are so much better. When you watch Serena play, you didn't have that impression. You had the impression that she could take on all comers. And I also think her... Her image as a black woman athlete was even more important. Um, I read an article recently that a a noted uh, commentator on social justice, a former NBA player whose name escapes me at the moment, he talked about how his young daughters watching Serena were just captivated and how much Serena made an impression on them as young black women that they could go forward and do whatever they wanted to do in the world. And in this nation where we are still fighting daily the battles of racism and gender inequality, that Serena in herself, along with Venus, could present and represent to this country what women and people of color can do when they are given the opportunity to shine. 
that they could break barriers and prove themselves worthy, and that they they did, and they are. I think it was magnetic, and I think their presence was dynamic. Did she change the game to the extent that women's tennis is now on a par, both financially and in terms of public interest, with men's tennis or not? Well, that's a harder question. I mean, I think there's been eras where the women's game had more attention. A lot of, from my perspective, a lot of interest in tennis is personality-bound and how the stars at the particular time. So when Chris Everett, Billie Jean King, and Martina Navratilova were dominant, they got a lot of attention. And Martina, in particular, played more of a power game. Um, and then maybe for periods of time, some of the stars later, the Steffi Grofs, for instance, were not as powerful. Serena brought back the power game, particularly. She, she showed herself able to perform uh, a nonstop onslaught of tennis. And I, I think that brought some transformation in the game. Now, some of the battles, Billie Jean King was very involved in fighting for equality of pay. So it started a long time ago. Um, I'm not as familiar with how much she was invested in that. I think she certainly contributed to to the belief that the women's game was worthy and equal. But um, I think we'll also, some of this we'll see as the time goes on. And it will also matter who the women are who take her place in the spotlight. Tennis is still a pretty white sport, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. There are. Uh, Nomi Osaka is is part Japanese and part black, I believe. Um, there are some women of color, Coco Gauss. Um, but tennis is still, and this is part of what the King Richard movie shows, what a battle it was to get attention for these two young prodigies to, for their, their uh, Venus and Serena's father, Richard, was a, certainly an orth, unorthodox person, and he did got a lot of doors slammed in his face, and he was persistent and said, you know, I may not have the money, but I have the, the daughters with talent. And he took an unorthodox approach. He didn't enter the, the, his daughters into amateur tournaments, and he found people that would work with them, and they became sensations almost overnight, both of them. So how did they break in? Remind us. Well, they they um, spent their time behind the scenes practicing, and at age 15 or so, or 16, even at that early age, it might sound like you think that's when they would begin. No, the amateur tournament started at 13 or so. They then, uh, along with their coach, decided, yes, she's ready. Uh, Serena in particular, but also Venus, and debuted them at a bit of a later stage and got them rather quickly into the professional ranks. And they just started to win tournaments. Serena won her first major, I believe, when she was 16 or 17 years old. Venus might have been a little bit older, but they were both teenage uh, Grand Slam tournament winners. So they moved to the forefront very quickly. We're going to need to take a break in just a couple minutes. I'd like to know your your reflections on this extraordinary career. You're a sports historian. I think you look at a phenomenon uh, uh, like Serena Williams a bit differently than those of us who are more casual observers of the game and more casual readers of the sports pages. What's your, what's your, what's your personal view? I, I found her to be a captivating personality on the court. Um, she was the person that you were riveted when you watched her because she just, she had it all. Uh, I I hadn't seen anybody perform at that level before. And um, I think in so many realms of sport, the, the players that captivate are the ones who truly transcend prior performance. I'm writing an article on Willie Mays right now, and he was clearly an individual who transcended what people saw before, who made plays that seemed almost impossible. Serena was like that, too. I can picture her catching up to balls on the tennis court that you thought she had no business catching up to. And I think when players surpass what we've seen previously, it's it's part of what we watch sports for, to see boundary breaking, just like you know track and field stars who run faster than it even seems possible. This is what moves me in sports, is to see the excellence that can be uh, de- 
demonstrated on a field of play. Did Serena Williams or her sister have a role model, someone they could look to as they pursued this this career? You know, I don't know. I mean, the, the obvious role model would have been Althea Gibson, but that was quite a bit before their time. She was, uh, I believe, the first African-American woman to win a Grand Slam title back in the late 50s. Um, I think there was really a dearth of women of color. And, of course, it doesn't necessarily have to be a woman of color, but, you know, you could understand as young girls that they would look for someone that might they might feel they resembled. So I'm not sure what the answer to that is. It might have been Althea Gibson. In terms of the love of sports and the devotion that this this uh, sport demanded of them, uh, was this something... I, and I've only seen a part of the movie, so I apologize for that. But is this something that came from their father or something that the two sisters developed between themselves? You know, it was a little bit of both. I mean, their father got the idea very early on to train them, to encourage them, but they took to it, like as the expression goes, a duck to water. They both loved it. And you, what you see in the movie, and my understanding is it was a pretty true-to-life um, um, dramatization, that they, from an early age, were, were very enthusiastic participants, that they loved the sport, and they loved to play with with and against each other. And we well know that Venus and Serena played a number of Grand Slam matches against each other and were fiercely competitive, but also fiercely supportive of each other. So I think that was forged from a young age. This is Fair Play with Duke Goldman. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Bill Newman in for Buzz Eisenberg. We have more right after this. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. According to Mark Twain, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. We'll do our best to find the right words and put them in the right order when we speak with elected local officials, students and teachers, newsmakers, activists and authors on The Bill Newman Show. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman, weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year. I'm Laura Guzik, Vice President Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender, and all of our lenders at the co-op have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business. I'm Adam Baker, Vice President Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Jay Sealer. Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. 
Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the Afternoon Buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. This is Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We are speaking with Duke Goldman. This is his segment, Fair Play. We were talking earlier today, Duke, about uh, Brittany Griner, and I'm wondering if you would give us your thoughts where that amazing, sad, difficult story now rests. Well, you know, the story is not completely over, certainly as far as people being detained in the Soviet Union. And I mentioned on the last Fair Play segment that Brittany Griner, to her and her wife's credit, uh, both her wife is a lawyer and has now said that she wants to dedicate herself to doing work to help people who are detained unfairly in foreign countries. So uh, they spoke out specifically about Paul Whelan and trying to bring him back. He was not brought back with with Brittany, um, not an athlete. But um, the other thing is that Brittany plans to play again, and you know I think she's going to inject an, a, an excitement into the game, re-inject it into the game. But we're talking about a sport that has been growing. Uh, the WNBA um, uh, had its highest ratings in 15 years this year. Uh, this, this was also the most viewed WNBA postseason in that long. And the NCAA championship game, um, which is kind of, the, of course, the feeder system into the women's uh, professional game, uh, its postseason championship was the most viewed in 20 years since the heyday of some of those great UConn women's teams. So I think we can see that um, the WNBA and other women's sports in 2023 are poised for for um, growth, poised for a surge in interest. And I will tell you also, on a local note, I go with friends of mine to see uh, Division Three women's college basketball, not infrequently, to Smith College and to Amherst College, and they play a great game, a game that I find, quite honestly, much more interesting than what I think is the boring one-on-one, above-the-rim basketball game that the pro men play. Kui Smith, I can see you. You have a question. You have something to it's, say about it. It's this. not so much a question as okay. like a an acknowledgement of how good the UMass women's season was last year and how it seemed to inspire the men's team to kind of pick up the pace and maybe do a little better. Like the women's team is still going real strong. And like the attendance at their games is just, I mean, it's better now that they won, but it's still like getting people to those games is still, it, it's an uphill battle just in general, I think, across the board. Well, let me ask you, Khalees, and ask Duke as well this question. Do you think that this game that is played in large measure, but not exclusively below the rim, is somehow less uh I don't know, less of an attraction to sports fan than the slam dunks and the, uh, well, it looks kind of like hockey out there on a basketball court sometimes. I mean, why why should that men's game that is, frankly, uh, somewhat brutal at times uh, be more of an attraction than the artistry that goes into the women's game? Well, you use the word brutal, and that goes to one of my favorite views of the current sporting world in in America, at least. Americans like slam-bang action and brutality. Notice why football is so popular. Um, I don't think they appreciate the artistry and teamwork as much as they should. And I grew up with a basketball game in the NBA in the early 1970s, the great Nick teams, where they, they, they didn't have superstars. They had players who played well together, team offense and team defense. And that's what the women do. I've seen women's uh, college softball games at UMass when I used to teach there where I was amazed at just how beautifully they played, how, how coordinated they were, how great they were at fielding, how great they were at executing. And I I think a a lot of Americans just don't appreciate those things. I grew up with Bob Cousy, 
as a, as a hero, as a sports phenom. And he didn't play above the rim. He was just amazing with his ball handling and his dribbling and his shooting. What happened to the appreciation for athletes, for basketball players like him? I don't have an answer for that. I, I for one, didn't find Michael Jordan very enjoyable to watch. I thought he was routinely spectacular, and he turned the game into, you know, one-on-one-ing, which I don't find interesting. Yeah, one player hot beating dogging. another. Hot dogging is what my, my family would call it. I actually, like, so the one of the first couple of seasons when Rondo was playing for the Celtics is one of the first seasons where I started watching basketball again because people rallying around him, I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but, like, watching him in that those particular seasons where he was playing for Boston, you got to see that team play as a team. And it was something, there was something really reinvigorating about the way that he played that brought everybody kind of back to the court as a unit instead of as individuals trying to show off and showboat. I'm wondering, the question to both of you, whether or not, in returning now to the, the question of uh, uh, Brittany Griner being released from Russia, she is a WNBA uh, star. There is another person still held in Russia, uh, Mark Fogel, who had 14 uh, grams of marijuana, medical marijuana, who got 14 years and is still there. And I'm wondering what it says that it's possible to have this great public outpouring of free, free the star, the sports star, uh, Brittany Griner, whereas not so much for a person who is just not well-known. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, on the one hand, I hear what you're saying, and, you know, the, the fact is that so many of us get caught up in celebrity. On the other hand, there was a lot of flack about releasing Britney, not releasing her with Paul Whelan, some people saying Britney was not, you know, not patriotic, and why, why are we paying attention to her? Um, so I kind of think it goes both ways, but you know we sh- should pay attention to everybody who's detained. And like I said, I I think it's great that Brittany's wife is planning now to make that a cause of hers in her legal practice. Right. I mean, I think they the government got the best deal it could under the circumstances, and it didn't involve releasing anyone else at that time, which is right. really sad. But. No one said the Russians were even-handed, easy negotiators. I mean, that, no. that, that, that's just not true. And Do, Brittany was also, as a, a woman of color and an openly gay woman, in, in perhaps more peril for those qualities in the Russian detention system. I mean, we can't know for sure, but I, I think that was a scary aspect to it. And I, wouldn't, I don't think anybody wants to see anybody spend years in, in, in the Russian gulags. That's for sure. We're going to leave it there. This has been Fair Play with Duke Goldman. Khalees Smith, thank you so much. You've been wonderful to work with. Thanks for running the board and for being part of our conversation. We thank all of our listeners for being with us today. This is Bill Newman in for Buzz Eisenberg. Buzz will be back next week, of course. Have a great weekend, everyone. Talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peel off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.